Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, we get to say hello, nasty, to the man himself, Steve Martin, who is a hardcore legend from bands Agnostic Front, Straw Dogs, and the FUs, and some other cool stuff we talk about, and also the mastermind and the brains and the, the uh, I guess, the man behind Nasty Little Man PR, who are the, of course, Hello Nasty behind the Beastie Boys record, Hello Nasty, and also the PR company for basically everyone, from like Paul McCartney to the Foo Fighters to uh, Beastie Boys, obviously, everyone, everyone, anyway. This is a great episode. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and guest booker and show producer extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on social media at left for Damien. Uh, there's a podcast, an Instagram account, and it is uh, at turnedoutapunk. There's also a Facebook account, a YouTube account, a TikTok account. I think that's it. And, and, and all those can be found. Oh, someone's watch just went off in the background. All those can be found at Turned Out of Punk on those respective <laughs> platforms. <laughs> I know the watch went off. <laughs> so we can keep going. We can keep going. I have a mystery guest down here right now. So <laughs> I'm not saying the name. No one knows who it is. <laughs> no one else. No one knows. No, <laughs> it's fine. No. Okay, I'll record. I'll record. I'll edit that out. Okay, you and uh, uh, yeah. So find the podcast. Uh, Turned out a punk on all those platforms and uh, check that stuff out. If you want to support the show, you can support the show by telling all your friends about this podcast and let them know that this is the place you can go to hear people talk about punk music a lot because I talk about punk music. Too much? Do you think I talk about punk music too much? Yes, way too much. <laughs> well, you can hear me talk about it a lot too. Poor, poor guest in the room has to hear me talk about it even more than you can do on this podcast. But we do it now twice a week. So more punk rock talk. <laughs> uh, if you want to check out the stuff I do in my band, you can check out my band. We are called... That's right. We are called Fucked Up. You can find us at Fucked Up on... Twitter and Instagram. Also, there's a website, fuckedup.cc, and that has a link to our merch store. Dates for our, our upcoming tour with the mighty, mighty Super Chunk. And I'm very excited to go on this tour. Holy jeez, I'm excited to see them every night. Uh, and we will be playing Homesick Fest with a lot of other great bands. This is going to be a really fun West Coast tour. We also have some new records coming out. I'm going to miss you. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not saying I'm not going to miss you every day of that tour. But uh, we've got some records coming out. And, uh, oh, also, look uh, lookingforgold.blogspot.com has relaunched. And Mike from Fucked Up is putting up some uh, really great essays about records and being in a band. And, you know, if you, if you were a fan of the Fucked Up blog back in the day, well, guess what? It is back. Same website and everything. Lookingforgold.blogspot.com. I believe. Check the fucked up social media. There's links to that. All right. On to today's show. As I said off the top, today on the show is a hardcore legend and a 
I guess. Are you okay? So it's got a little. Okay, okay. So so it's got a little bit of a cold. Uh, a punk rock uh, legend and a, and a music legend, industry legend, I guess. Uh, the, we've got Steve Martin on the podcast. Steve Martin is someone that I first became aware of. Well, we talk about this on the show. I'm not going to spoil it and, and go into that stuff uh, too early or anything like that. But he's been someone I've been trying to get on the podcast for a long time. And this episode had some audio issues, so I managed to kind of clean it up. And uh, now you can finally get to hear it. I'm very excited for you to hear this one because... Yeah, this is a guy who links so many worlds and is from hardcore and punk rock and amazing person. Anyway, you're going to hear it in a second. Uh, should I shut up and let them hear the episode now, Cam? Yeah, just shut up. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to sit back, relax, and enjoy Steve Martin on Turned Out. Of punk. A punk. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Well, as I was telling you off air, uh, this is something, well, I mean, I even didn't even get a chance to say this. This is something I've wanted to do for a very long time because uh, your your position in both AF and uh, the Straw Dogs FUs has always fascinated me, being one of the few people that I knew that was part of both scenes at that time. Also, I think I spoke to you on the phone years ago when I tried to set up an interview with Sick of It All. So... It's great to finally that's, put a face to the name and the voice. Yeah, that's entirely possible. We worked really closely with Sick of It All in the early to, to late 90s, really. Probably most of that decade. I think we stopped working with them around like 2000, some somewhere around there. Yeah, it would have been 97, I believe. So that would have fit right into the timeline, I guess. Oh, yeah, built, built to last. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, thank you for your help back then. And thank you for your help today. And also I interviewed uh, Arwen from the band Syringe. Have you heard of Syringe from Indonesia by chance? No, I haven't heard of them. They're arguably like, I guess maybe one of the biggest hardcore bands in the world, you know, just in terms oh, of their wow. popularity. Yeah, it's, it's Indonesia's hardcore scene is, is probably the biggest in the world. Huh. And they're one of the biggest bands in it. And he was just on the podcast and mentioned how, Years ago, he got your address and number and wrote to you, and you sent him a bunch of free sick of it all stuff. And we're one of the people that oh, definitely really? wrote back to him. Yeah, so you, you definitely your, your name rings uh, high on this show over the years. Oh, that's well, that's nice to know because I I feel like I've never been more out of touch with what's going on <laughs> in the international hardcore scene than than I and year year after year as as I get older. Well, I spend my life living in it, and I'm completely out of touch as well. So I'm you know, definitely, <laughs> you're not alone, sadly. No, yeah. please do not. Um, but this is not about the international hardcore scene. This is about the Steve okay. Martin hardcore scene. I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Steve, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? I think probably either seeing something about the Sex Pistols on 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 the just network news or something and or just seeing um all the the rock magazines that were my portal to the outside world in uh outside of long island where i grew up in suffolk county it was pretty remote but it was still just a matter of uh one one train transfer on the uh on the lirr to getting into new york city as i found when i started sneaking out to shows when i was like about 14 years old but the the magazines like Cream and Rock Scene and and Circus and the '70s rock magazines that I I was 
learning about mu music of all genres through, they kind of started writing about punk early on and it, it seemed like it was the next big thing at the time, at least to, to, the, to the media, to the music media and the places where I had been going to read about David Bowie and Led Zeppelin. And, you know, I was already playing guitar by the time I heard about that. Uh, I heard about this punk rock thing coming out of England and uh, they, they just started writing about it. You know, the, the, the music press back then is the, the print press is kind of akin to what the, 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 the role that social media fills nowadays with turning people onto new stuff. And like, you know, nowadays it's going on someone's YouTube channel who you, t who you trust. And back then it was, yeah, trusting the people who wrote for Cream Magazine in the 70s. And it felt like punk was like a, a genre that it was the first genre that like music journalists were actually participating in. Like a lot of the bands were, you know, early writers, fanzine writers or, you know, Richard uh, Metzger writing and, and playing in VOM or or the guys in the gizmos and stuff like that. Like there's always yeah, kind Lester of this, bangs, yeah. Lester Bang, exactly. There's a like, sort of deep connection between journalists. It's like such a postmodern genre that it would make sense that music, music journalists were kind of like taking hold of it. Even if you look at that early Cleveland stuff, right? And like the fact yeah. that punk as a name comes from a fanzine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I actually wrote about music too. Like I, like ever, ever since I first saw David Bowie on uh, Cher's variety show when I was 10 years old, I had my epiphany then that I, I knew I was going to do something with having to do with music with my life, whether it was the, the guitar I got my parents to buy shortly after that or uh, writing about it because I, I went to school in, in Boston and got a journalism degree and I was writing, I was doing show reviews for the independent student paper there and interviewing some artists for it. And uh, even when I was in AF, I was, I was meeting people along, along the way when we were touring, like Pusshead, who was music editor at Thrasher at the time. And I ended up writing a couple pieces for them on, on uh, as a result of meeting him and becoming friends with him. And I was always looking to do something. And I, you know, I, I kind of fell into the PR thing and uh, it, it's pretty much stuck because this is the 31st year I've been in business. So it's. Uh, it is the kind of the world that meshes all of it. You're like, you have to know how to deal with bands. You have to know how to deal with the writers kind of like where, where the art and the, uh, the promotion and the commerce all kind of come together is through sort of the PR side of things. Yeah. And I think the, the, the kind of DIY aspect of, of hardcore that I had come of age in really helped because you don't wait for anyone to do it for you. Like you just, it, it never, I never thought twice about starting this company. I just was kind of like, well, I know, a bit about the media and a, a lot about music and I know how to talk about this stuff and I know how to argue and, and get someone to see my point of view on things. And uh, it just, it, it just it was sort of like a happy accident, but my, my skill set kind of suited something that, that uh, there was, there was a void in at the time in, uh, in the music business. Like there, there really wasn't anyone doing uh PR doing, you know, media promotion, media public relations for uh, 
for bands like the ones that I started out with, like Helmet and Ween and Bad Religion and even Smashing Pumpkins was the first band I ever booked on SNL. Uh, first, first person I ever, first artist I ever got on the cover of Rolling Stone. Um, you know, when, when Beastie Boys were looking for a new publicist and toward the end of the Check Your Head tour, they just, Mike D just called me, you know, because I, I knew them from around, from, from like the quote unquote, the scene. And uh, yeah, it just, like I said, it just kind of fell together pretty quickly in the first year or two. Well, it's interesting, like, weirdly, with the, I guess, the exception of the Smashing Pumpkins, who maybe you can correct me on this, but all those other bands from Ween to Foo Fighters, the BC Boys, obviously, to everything, like, it's all punk and hardcore people that are in these bands. Like, Ween's first tape is, like, with uh, Social Decay. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I, I saw Beastie Boys back in the day at, like, Danceteria and The Rat when they were just the hardcore band and when Adam Harvitz had an it was he was still in the young and the useless yes who i saw at cbs one time um yeah they all had those those roots in it like helmet was kind of like post hardcore mm -hmm. if, if anything um if the ween guys like yeah they had crossover and shared members with rollins band and whatever so yeah there there was again it was a lot of that kind of diy ethos that that came out of that came out of that scene permeated what happened with with alternative rock. I mean, Dave Grohl was in Scream before he was in Nirvana. And Dane Bramage before that, and uh, was it Mission, Mission Impossible? Impossible? Yeah, before yeah. that. There's that's the thing I love about this scene, and like kind of you know, and I think it was even like at the time realizing that oh my god, Hello Nasty on the BC Boys thing <laughs> is, is the same people that I called for the sick of it all interview. So there's like this sort of connection and then some old bullshit's kind of coming out around then too. And so like, you know, you're pretty able to put the pieces together, but now years later, I, it's all punk. Like it's all people that came out of this sort of punk scene. I imagine you're like Dave Grohl. I'm sure you got, would have came across at some point with the uh, straw dogs or, or, you know, AF with Scream and stuff, right? Oh, we like, did. They, yeah, they, uh, they opened, uh, I, I mean, I had seen Scream a bunch of times before Dave was in the band when Kent Stacks was playing drums. But then I remember they, they opened for us, I think at Lupo's in Rhode Island, um, where, early in, in the stage that he had just taken over. And we were just all, all like, who's that kid who's drumming for Scream? He's, he's really taking them to the next level. Yeah. So, yeah, we yeah. definitely crossed paths before. There's an amazing video on YouTube of him playing with Dane Bramage. And it's just like, this is a guy that's, yeah, I love Dane Bramage. I love that LP, but he's clearly like overplaying the band so much. It's like a, a Pinto <laughs> with a Ferrari engine in it or something. Yeah, there's weird uh, Dane Bramage uh, trivia, related trivia is that one time when um, I, I had a, a a band after AF that just played two or three shows that was kind of like a New York hardcore all-stars post-hardcore type of band called Angry Head. And um, we were auditioning bass players and it was me and uh, P.D. Hines, the drummer from uh, Murphy's Long and Pro-Mags. And we, uh, Ruben came in an audition and we played with him and it went really well. I don't know what ever happened. We just kind of like the band kind of fizzled out, but we, he never played live with us, but we had like one really cool rehearsal with him. Oh, that's awesome. So what's the deal with Angry Head? I've never heard of this. Did you guys record it all or just the two shows? 
No, just just the two shows we played that I can remember. We played CBGB and we played uh, we played Wetlands when they were having shows there. I don't know if you remember that place. Infamous, uh, infamous time in hardcore. Yeah, yeah, early '90s when I was in my kind of wilderness uh, period between having uh, left my job at uh, at the label that AF recorded for Relativity. And uh, it was just like freelance writing for a living, thinking about the PR thing um, and possibly thinking about continuing music. So it was me, uh, Anthony Caminal from Killing Time was singing. Oh, my God. Uh, Arthur Smilios from Gorilla Biscuits and Civ was playing bass and PD was playing drums. Oh, that's a real all-star group. What's the vibe of this thing? It was like post hardcore. Like it was, uh, there was nothing that that like went to like the like hardcore bad brains BPM, like nothing that fast, but it was like, it was kind of like, you know, had elements of, of kind of sort of quasi metallic alternative type of, I I don't know how to label it. Yeah. That kind of New York period like the late late eighties into the early nineties where there's sort of that transition that kind of like the groove kind of hits New York, it seems. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have like slap bass or anything like that, but it was more like, <laughs> it, it was, it was more like killing joke and, and Chrome and stuff like that. With, but with like hardcore vocals and, and, and heavier guitar, bass and drums type of uh, type of vibe. So it kind of, would it fit on like AMRAP? Would it kind of fit with that helmet kind of world of stuff? It sounds yeah, amazing it, from your description. It probably probably would have. I'll see if uh, I might still have a cassette of like a of the board tape from the CB show because I know we had that at some point, but I have no idea where it is, and I have no idea how to even play a cassette at this point. But I could probably give it to somebody who could digitize it for me. For all the people I know who have studios. <laughs> Well, I think there's a lot of hardcore kids that want to hear that. I think that you've uh, you definitely there's an audience looking for that tape to be digitized now. Well, there's an audience of about probably roughly 500 people who've ever seen it between those two shows. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that's the thing about you know, and obviously we're jumping way ahead, but you know, New yeah, York, yeah. New York during that period, and like I guess the general kind of New York area, the greater New York area, there's just like so much that's happened band wise, and like. You know, you can talk about hardcore, but then there's also that sort of like pig fucker for the worst term possible, but like noise rock stuff that's also happening. Same time, hip hop stuff's happening. Like it feels like actually all over the East Coast, there's such an explosion of culture that kind of kicks off in like the early 80s and then right into the 90s and everything that kind of happens there. It's really like, it's wild how much stuff's happening, churning out. Yeah, you have from Go-Go down in D.C. to like, the like the metal stuff that was coming out of florida at the time to like yeah the quote-unquote scum rock scene whatever you would call it in in new york that white (laughs) zombie came out of uh yeah there was there was so much stuff going on at that point so i guess going back to when you first started going to shows you mentioned uh being into the glam stuff were you aware of like milk and cookies or any of that sort of new york glam stuff that was happening at the same time as bowie not really. I was a little too young to 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 have gotten into that. Like, like I'm I'm old enough that I was at CBGB a lot, but I'm I'm young enough that I never made it to Max's. Yeah. So <laughs> the, that's kind of like, like the, the sweet spot that I'm in. 
Yeah. Like, uh, uh, but I, it was a great time to come of age because, like, when I first started going to shows, it was like 1979 would, would be the first year that I actually like snuck in and went uh, to a show like on my own with some friends without like parental supervision, and it was the the police, UK subs, and Steel Pulse at the Palladium. Whoa! Right I didn't even know that happened. That was UK subs opening for the police with Steel Pulse. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. As an unforgettable show, it was at the it was on the Regatta de Blanc tour, the police's second tour when they were first starting to like blow up, and uh, and that was a great show. And then like from there, it was like seventy nine was seventy nine and eighty were like such great years because like so punk had kind of was kind of on the wane at that point as far as like it, it was clear that it wasn't going to become a, a commercial success to match its critical acclaim but you could still go see the ramones and the heartbreakers and the clash and uh, all all these great bands that i was seeing like sort of later on like three albums in or so or whatever i, I think the first time i saw the ramones was probably on like pleasant dreams or end of the century or subterranean jungle one of those records um not that it mattered it was still like a, a life-changing show um but the thing is there there was like all these kind of like genreless bands that were coming out of this post-punk explosion that i would go see on like you know seeing like two shows a month but those shows would be like gang of four and public image limited and Susie and the banshees and echo and the bunny man and the cramps and like it just it was like there was like one genre of music at the time and it was just good like no two bands sounded alike really but they were all great and then at the same time I was starting to go see like a couple of years later like 80 81 82 i started going to see like minor thread and bad brains and black flag and you know it, it was just a it was kind of a seamless transition well i find it so fascinating that like you said 79 80 bad brains moving to new york and you have that end of of sort of this whatever new york like you meant like sort of the genreless time period post-punk just not as a genre but it just post-punk as a term um and then you kind of have the rise of new york hardcore happen but it is such a fascinating period like i love the mad and, and student teachers and like there's all yeah. this sort of like weird stuff that new york was you know stimulators like that was popping off there where uh I don't know, I feel like they're kind of lost in the the monolith that is New York hardcore or New York punk. There's a sort of like, like you're saying, a gap year that's fascinating. Yeah, there is kind of like a, a, a lost generation of bands that were like, like the New York thrash cassette on, uh, yes. on Roar type, type yes. of like generation. Like they kind of, they, they were kind of like pioneers, but they, they, never, uh, they never hit the gold rush. So did you do any bands like around then in new york yeah i i was in, i played drums in a band that played a couple shows uh called bacteria glasses and i have i i'm still in touch with one of the guys from that band this guy mark furnish he's a very successful uh criminal defense attorney and uh he he was a, a running buddy of mine for a while with shows like one of the only people who would take the trip into new york city with me from from long island and like risk missing the last train home and had to like sleep in Penn station. Mind you, like late, late seventies, early eighties Penn station when it was really Penn station. Yeah, exactly. Real New York. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's funny. Cause there's people that talk about growing up in New York and it goes right into the, like the late eighties, it seems where, 
you're yeah. just going to get mugged. It's like, that's just the reality of going to Lower East Side or you're going to be in a crew or you're going to have to do something to protect yourself because it's it's like violence is a real thing. Yeah, I remember the, the first show I actually went to like deep into the Lower East Side was the, a place called the Sin Club on Avenue C. And uh, I think it was a COC. COC was definitely playing like the Eric Ike lineup. Oh, amazing. And I forget who else was playing, but the show got got cut short because some someone like uh, had some altercation with the locals and somebody got stabbed and someone came back with a gun and it's just i had never uh never experienced anything like that in my sheltered suburban upbringing well it's and it's so fascinating how and this is happens time and time again i think it's new york really is where it starts but how punk winds up being sort of the the lichen of gentrification for a lot of these neighborhoods and a lot of these places. Cause like by the time yeah. I was going to New York in the mid nineties, early two thousands, the Lower East side was, was already by then like sort of this just storied sort of almost tourist attraction on the way to become yeah. the tourist attraction is now. Yeah. I think it, uh, the kind of dividing line for me was that incident with the, uh, with the kids who were here from out of town who said, uh, what are you going to do? Stab me or something. You, do you know that story? Yeah. I've I heard think that, that, story. that that book lush life is based on that. And, uh, that seemed to me to be the, the dividing line in, uh, the new and old lower East side. And that was like sometime in like mid to mid two thousands or something. And then mm -hmm. after that, the, I don't know if it was increased police presence or, just that seemed to be the wake up call when I was like, oh yeah, this is like uh, Ludlow Street and, and or Orchard Street are becoming kind of like Daytona Beach. Like it's kind of like, you know, college kids coming coming in to 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 drink and party and whatever. And uh, it's it's gonna be made safe now somehow. And it would yeah, that was kind of the 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 last uh, last gasp pre-gentrification. Well, it feels like it's like the the punk club will eventually invite sort of the the health food store or the <laughs> the record store or the cool bookstore, which will bring the antique shops, which will bring the cafe, which will bring you know, and it and it's interesting to watch it play out on the Brooklyn waterfront more recently, kind of in the same way with DIY spaces. It happened much more acceleratedly, I guess. On the well, everything the happens much more acceleratedly now. It's yeah. just the 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 way. It, the way things are like if you want to get the word out about a new spot like you just post about it you don't have to like go out at night with a wheat pasting brigade and, and flyer like the cool places or like you know find the cool record store to like put your flyer up with the phone number to call to, or the address or whatever yeah it's it's just everything's online now and so it just moves faster speaking of uh, i guess wheat pasting and leading to graffiti did you ever uh, see frontline I saw them open for uh, Bad Brains once at CBGB in like 83 or so, something like that. I have zero memory of it, but I'm, but I'm pretty sure it was, I'm pretty sure it was Frontline, Antidote, and maybe, maybe Motive Ignorance or something. What a bill. Oh my God. <laughs> something like that. I might be conflating a couple shows, but I, it, it might have been one of those shows where they were playing like a, a matinee and a night show. And like some of those bands were playing the first show. Some of them were playing the second show. 
That's awesome. So do you remember when that kind of like, you know, and maybe this is something that just has been perceived over time or, or kind of hyped up over time, but like, there seems like there's a shift that kind of happens where, where hardcore kind of comes in or like tougher hardcore seems comes in like bands like the abused and, and uh, antidote and stuff like that. Like, and, and there's and frontline and stuff like that. Do you remember that kind of coming in and the change happening? Or is that something that just is so gradual? It was kind of, yeah, to me, it was kind of like I came into it. It didn't it didn't come in for me because by the time I was going to hardcore shows, it was like 1982. And I was just seeing those bands usually as like the local openers for like something like MDC or DRI or or someone who was who was coming through new york and and you know antidote or frontline or uh you know i remember the first time i saw agnostic front they were they were playing they were opening on uh, at the old rock hotel on jane street they were opening for channel three and crowd oh what a show yeah That's that was wild. a great show did you ever see and gilligan's they, island sorry i mean chaos Gilligan's Revenge or Gilligan's Revenge? You ever see Gilligan's, Gilligan's Revenge? Yeah, I saw them. Oh, they that's were, awesome. They were pretty great. I remember seeing them, and my impression being like, "Oh, these guys can play." <laughs> like, yeah, they they were they were really good. I, I remember exactly now when uh, it just popped into my head. I remember when I the first time I saw Gilligan's Revenge, and po- probably the only time was uh, in '84 when I had first joined the FUs. The winter of '84, we came down for a one-off just to headline a a CB's matinee and I'm pretty sure Gilligan's revenge opened that. Awesome. Like that's the thing is all this stuff has become so storied and like these tapes that were lost forever that people have dug up. Like it's uh, it's amazing because it seems like it was a very small scene for yeah. the impact it had globally. Yeah, it definitely was. And like, I remember like, I, I can't remember for the life of me, like how I kind of, insinuated myself into the boston hardcore scene but i just did and uh, i i just i knew i wanted to play in a band or start a band or whatever and i like i had jammed with a bunch of people locally and i had found out like where the rehearsal spaces were where like the fus and dys rehearsed and like i became friends with the guys from jerry's kids and gangrene somehow and like it wasn't really that hard to seek them out because at that time people were like you know a couple hundred people at a show was a pretty huge show. If you were like playing like the rat or the channel in Boston or the paradise in Boston. Um, but yeah, I somehow got my foot in the door and like I, my freshman year of college was 1983. And, you know, by, by the summer of 1984, I was, I was auditioning for, for the FUs. And so it happened really quickly and it was a small tight knit scene. And like, and I'm still in touch with a lot of those people too. So it's, it's, it hasn't, it's definitely contracted again over the years, like social media kind of, uh, kind of reinvigorated it for a second there, like starting in like the, around like 2008, 2009, like that seems to be when everybody started doing all the reunion shows. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is now it's just, everyone's doing reunion shows. Like, like post pandemic, especially like every band that was broken up decided, well, maybe we should give it another shot. And so it just feels like yeah, everyone's on tour constantly now. Yeah. 
Yeah, and everyone is on tour constantly now at that uh, at the level of uh, of clients that I work with too. Like I, I was saying to Metallica's manager last year, like I just said off off the cuff, like oh man, it's been so crazy this year with everybody making up for lost time in the pandemic, and they're all like wanting to like get their albums out and get their tours going, and like they're all on top of each other. And he said like, well, twenty twenty three is going to be even worse. And he was right. Yep. Stage observation. (laughs) Yeah. I guess it was everyone was just getting the machine warmed up again for 2023 and 2022. Yeah. And I I, I think there has to be a a break soon because it's not sustainable. Like there's just too many people out there on top of each other. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely feels like, uh, well, I think, you know, I already feel with my own band and my own tours. Like I'm like, I'm sick of these people again. So that'll set in. Oh yeah. (laughs) That's that you can always rely on that side of things rearing its head again in the bands well that could be a a, a net positive at a certain point like if you uh take a take a little break might that might not be the worst idea exactly exactly well anyway back to more pleasant topics and more pleasant times like it's interesting because go to boston and this is something that's definitely been played up over time but it is something that's come up on this podcast there was legitimate beef between those two scenes yeah, rivalry yeah at different times it was like were people just like, is that more on like sort of a, a like sort of citywide level than a personal level? Did you find any sort of like weirdness from any of these bands? Not really. I mean, that was kind of like that predated my the actual like physical altercations that came out of that. Like, or I don't know if they were like fights so much as they were kind of like dance floor challenges about you know who could who could dance harder. Uh, I'm not really sure. Depends who you ask, I find, in, on this podcast. Yeah. I've definitely heard very different accounts of this thing over the years. It's like the, it's like, like I don't know, like an assassination of JFK type thing with many different perspectives depending on where you were standing those <laughs> nights of those shows. Good, good analogy, yeah. I mean, I remember uh, both, show, both scenes being pretty, uh, pretty violent in terms of like the intensity in which people reacted to the, to the music. Um, I mean, New York and Boston pits back then were insane. And, and I do remember, you know, hearing about the rivalry from both sides and I don't really remember experiencing it because I remember being nervous the first time I was coming down and playing, uh, to play CDs with, with, uh, the FUs in 84 and like, oh, is there going to be like any like remnants of this like scene rivalry or, you know, uh, beef that people have with with Boston bands, or I remember being a little nervous about that. But it was there was nothing. It was just we had a great crowd. It was packed and it was a lot of fun. It was a fun show. And then the whole way I I ended up uh, auditioning for AF, trying out for AF was uh, because the Straw Dogs played a show supporting them at TT the Bears in Boston, and a friend of mine from New York. Uh, John Golden, his nickname is Wrecking Machine. You may have heard of him. He was like a scene personality. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was he had come up with AF and uh, to for the show, and he was he tipped me off. So like, oh, they're 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 going to want to replace the lead guitar player. You should try out. And uh, he introduced me to Roger, and uh, I just said like, yeah, I can be down like during my Thanksgiving break from school, if you, if you wanted to like give me a chance and they gave me a shot and it worked. Yeah. I've always heard that AF is like, uh, 
a very familial kind of band. Like it's like joining a family a little bit. Did you find that? Or is that once again, something perceived from the outside or is it like, yeah, uh, I, I guess so. Because like, it's, it's kind of like, um, it's definitely stayed, stayed with me over the years, even when I've gone for like years without, without talking to Roger or Vinny, who, you know, then being the only two guys who are still in the band from when I was in it. Um, but yeah, I've I've said this before. Like when I see them, when when uh, when when they come through New York every now and then, like Roger will text me and just say like, "Hey, you want to get up and play a song with us?" And I do. And even even the guys that I don't really know at at all or all that well, like Mike and Craig and uh, those those guys who've been in the band for like whatever ten years, twenty years, which seems like a lot by by an objective measure but isn't that is like you know a third to a half of the time the band has existed just put a sliver in the career of (laughs) but it's just yeah it's it's just kind of like stepping in back into like a a very comfortable place like a like a comfort zone that is kind of a familial vibe yeah it's kind of like once once you're in you're in for life and and uh and you may get called back up to the to to perform at, at any given time but I always appreciated that Roger always said, like, uh, you know, I didn't want to put you on the spot that uh, I wanted to make sure that you like were were uh, were playing. And, that you know, you know, he doesn't know for all he knows, I might have not touched a guitar for <laughs> three years between uh, between AF tours or whatever coming to New York. So um, you got to be ready. Appreciative of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I it, It's funny. Someone told me one time the analogy I heard is that if you gave agnostic front a loaf of bread it would be shared amongst all the members whereas there are certain bands that if you gave them a loaf of bread all the members would be dead having fought over that loaf of bread <laughs> i had my conflicts with the with the with with guys in the band when i was in just like everyone does we had our like spats and tiffs and, and petty bullshit and whatever that that is like such a big deal when you're like 22 years old but like doesn't mean shit when you like look back at it when you're in your 50s you know yeah. So yeah. like anytime I see like, you know, Craig Satari or or you know, anybody like that, like it's always a it, it's always great to 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 see someone from that period of, of your life who's still doing the the thing that, that they love and still involved in like they and they, you know, from what I can tell, they seem legitimately happy for me that I've found my niche in the in the business side of things. So there's that as well. Yeah, it does feel like family. Like there can be small conflicts, but at the end of the day, you're still part of the family. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I fight with my own family from time yes. to time. So. <laughs> Don't we all? Um, yeah. Going back to Boston, I got to ask you about one of my favorite compilations ever, the Boston <laughs> Goes Deaf compilation. Which, I was amazed that you had that. I, I've I, never seen a copy of that in the wild. <laughs> I bought this on the strength of you appearing on this compilation. A friend of mine named Glenn Salter, who played in the band MSI, uh, sold me this record being like, it features a member of the FUs in it. And I was like, <laughs> really? And he showed me your name on uh, on the track. And then also that Slick Rick, the ruler, makes his first ever appearance on a record, I believe, on this record as well. On the next track, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah, it's wild. I, I played on the, the Fat Girls track, right? Fat Girls, which is an amazing track by the Fat Girls of Boston. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, no, he's two tracks down on Suzy Q. Oh, which, 
slightly less progressive for women, Susie Q, than the fat girls of Boston track, but <laughs> but both are classic. And it's so to me, this record is like this, and obviously Frontline and the Beastie Boys and things like that. But like, I love that connection between hip hop, which is the major cultural revolution that's happening at that time, and and punk and hardcore, which is the other sort of giant revolution that's happening at that time. Yeah, I mean. That was just, uh, I think how that, that happened that I wound up on that, on that track was that, uh, Steve Barry guy who was producing, uh, the straw dogs EP or, or maybe the, we are not amused album. Okay. One of the two just asked me to stay after when we were finishing a session, it was like, you know, the other guys left and he asked me to, to just play the riff from trigger finger. I think it is. And, uh, and just play it like in a slightly different rhythm to this uh, this drum machine loop that he had programmed, and uh, and I just did, and I didn't know what was going to come of it. Like uh, I got a copy of it when it, when it came out, but who knows whatever happened to that? He also, it's funny that you bring that up because he also did uh, the same guy. His nickname was Mr. Beautiful, and he had a compilation that he put out called Mr. Beautiful Presents All Hard. And the first song on it was the FU's doing uh, the original version of Indeed, the Straw Dog song. Oh, he and, put that uh, out too. That's wild. I didn't even make that connection. Yeah, a, an old friend of mine gifted me with a copy of that record last year. And uh, I, I hadn't seen a copy of that in, in ages either. So these uh, these specters from my from my past are, are coming back to me. I wouldn't say coming to haunt me because it's it's, it's all like good memories but it's stuff that I had totally and completely forgotten, like 100%. Like, if you hadn't brought up that 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 Boston Goes Deaf compilation, there's no way I would have ever thought of that again in my life. Well, it's funny, because this is one of those records that's huge to me. You're like, finding out about this record, I'm surrounded by too many records, but this is one of those records that I always think about. With hip-hop, and sadly, a lot of the early stuff is kind of overshadowed by the stuff that came out of New York. Um, yeah. And so this was my first exposure to early sort of bot or earlier boston hip-hop stuff and it's it's great it's like such a cool compilation so you and also slick rick kind of make the move to new york around the same time back to new york i guess for you but at the same time yeah <laughs> coincidentally <laughs> coincidentally this compilation launched a lot of progression back to new york what were those fu's uh what was like that era of new york i'm uh, sorry boston like because i just rewatched the american hardcore documentary for a screening of it the other day and it really did feel kind of like the air getting let out of a balloon at a certain point post everyone kind of putting out their their more mature records and and straw dogs are kind of the band that kind of keeps going and i guess freeze as well but it feels like a lot of the bands are kind of giving up at this point yeah it seemed you know ssd played the their final show around around that time and dys kind of fell apart and uh jerry's kids i think played their first farewell show i think it was 1984 yeah it was like i definitely joined at, at the tail end and i'm, I'm sure like this the change well the change of the uh of the name from the fu's to the straw dogs i think probably was was a function of like pop for apples leaving the fu's and and uh and us getting more um more kind of rock in our our songwriting structures and stuff um yeah it was it was not an easy time to be in a band like that like when it when i first joined the band it was like my first show was uh was we were opening for suicidal tendencies at the channel for like thousands of people 
So, and then we were like headlining a couple other shows like in in short succession after that and like opening for like the Minutemen at one point and uh, I think Seven Seconds uh, we opened for a couple of shows later. And like that, that was when it was still feeling kind of vibrant and happening. But then like by, by the mid eighties, by like 85, 86, it just felt like it was petering out. And I look back on it now and just realize like, oh, it wasn't like at the time we were kind of like struggling to find good shows and good bills to get on and good venues to play. And uh, it, in hindsight being 2020, I, I realize now like it just, it wasn't meant to last for more than a couple of years. So it kind of ran its course. Well, it's interesting to like look at that period because it is such a, like 83 to 85, it seems like everything's kind of winding down for the first wave yeah. of American hardcore, yeah. right? And like, you know, Dinosaur Jr. comes out of Deep Wound at that time. And, you know, replacements and Husker Du start going more college rock kind of vibes with their music. And you have that sort of happening at the same time as you have the Boston scene going through this metamorphosis. And that's why you Straw Dogs are kind of this bridge band, because then a few years later... 86 80 well i guess 87 88 you have youth crew stuff and and sick of it all and everything popping off in new york yeah. and Slapshot and wrecking crew in boston it feels like there's almost this sort of like gap once again another gap year like it's interesting i have these generational gap years in between scene flourishes all the way through punk and hardcore it seems yeah it was it was a a, a weird thing and like we we were like playing show these weird shows like we'd go down to like 85 we'd go down to dc i remember we played an outdoor show there where we were definitely the odd men out on that bill where straw dogs were playing like with like ignition and rights of spring i think and you know it was just it was really really strange and like i remember talking to the government issue guys then talking to john stab and tom lyle and they were saying how they were feeling like kind of men out of time as well like they were feeling out of sync with what was going on with the revolution summer and that whole thing and uh yeah and it was before fugazi formed like i think ian was doing embrace or egg hunt or whatever at that point mm -hmm. um yeah that was a weird it was a weird time that you kind of need these like uh regrouping kind of evolutionary uh gap year type of periods for like for for the next iteration to kind of work itself out because like yeah, I know, the, now now that's kind of happening with with these bands like turnstile and code orange and all these bands that i'm seeing like called calling themselves hardcore bands and you know it it doesn't sound like what i was playing in 1987 you know or whatever but yeah i look i look back on it and it was it was it was definitely like I was definitely playing in in bands like that at some like difficult transitional periods for the for the music and scene as a whole for sure. Yeah, like it feels like right now. Obviously, I think we're into as you're saying we're kind of an explosion. Like the bands you mentioned, Scowl. Like there's a sort of uh, God's hate. There's this wave of of hardcore, you know, resonating with people again. But you know there there are those lean years before this and i think the thing that's fascinating is that if you follow this this sort of lineage from these bands like these bands were the kids that were going to the shows of the bands that were going to see you play with af it's amazing how there is this sort of 
lineage that is completely independent, completely kind of underground. Obviously, eventually it gets above ground, but it does keep finding a way to find that space to put on that show, even though you can't do it anymore on the Lower East Side or the Brooklyn waterfront. There's going to be somewhere, someplace that a kid's going to be able to put on a hardcore show and make completely uncommercial music for no other reason they want to make it. Yeah. And I mean, that, that was something that was good, that was, that was pure and, and honest about that kind of music. Because at the time that the Lower East Side was all like matinees at, at CBGB and occasionally Great Gildersleeves, and sometimes the bigger bands would play like someplace like Irving Plaza, like a, like a Misfits or a Minor Threat show that would draw like a thousand people there. Um, there, was, there, was no, there was no commercial aspirations they were just we were just doing it because it was it was something that that everybody had to do that everyone had to get off their chest that everyone had to get out of their system that everyone you know had to thoughts and feelings and emotions and and aggressions that had to be expressed there there wasn't like you know no one was saying like well maybe if we move uh this middle eight part into the intro and like change the, and write the bridge like this. And then maybe we'll get on like alternative radio or something or college radio. I mean, I don't, I don't think college radio was even a thing until like the first REM record, which kind of came out after the whole hardcore explosion. Well, I think it starts in but, Boston, right? Like the police famously getting played in Boston first on sort of like college radio stations. but you're right. Like it's kind of punk once again, uh, a, an outgrowth of punk and hardcore bands like REM bands like Husker Du, bands like replacements kind of creating yeah. this lane for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't obviously like, obviously like college radio stations were playing music way before that, but I mean, college the, rock, the college, college radio as, yeah, as a genre or yeah. whatever, as, as a category of, or as like later, not, not much later than that as a department that every, at every, major or independent record label they had a college radio guy all of a sudden or girl or whatever or cmj was my introduction to the college music journal which was like that yeah. publication that would come with that free cd and, oh, and like, yeah. once again like it was kind of like really going back to what you're saying that that genreless time in music that eventually becomes college rock because there is no real genre to it other than it wouldn't have fit on mainstream radio but there was a growing audience for it yeah yeah, like whether that's like REM and the replacements or whether it's like Husker Du or No Trend or whatever, like, <laughs> you know, it's just stuff that wasn't going to get played on uh, on your uh, mass market FM radio station. One uh, band that definitely got played on major radio stations at a certain point were the New Kids on the Block. And I've been obsessed with this band Miracle Boy which was a Boston band around the time that you're in Boston featuring Jordan Knight and EK who later played drums in Warzone. Did oh, you ever yeah, see them? But you no, ever I seen... never saw them. Weird. There, no one saw them. Like I've asked everyone, everyone from Elgin James to Gerard, like anyone that was in Boston during that time. Because I know they played shows at the Rat. I've seen like two listings for, or maybe it's the Middle East, but then two listings for them playing shows. So I know they played at least a show, but there is... Huh. A New Kids on the Block punk band. And then later on, EK, I think, is in a New Kids on the Block video. And there's Jordan's wearing a Youth of Today shirt at one point in one of their videos. So there is some sort that of... That sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. But, but it was the band was called Miracle Boy? Miracle Boy. Or Miracle Boys, maybe. But yeah. But, and, and, I, and I've only seen the two listings for it. I've never actually seen flyers. But 
a fascinating weird thing that like once again not to beat this drum to death but like everything comes back to this genre in some way yeah it does i mean that that's kind of like uh the mysterious band that very few people have ever heard of existing it's good it's kind of like their uh their version of my uh my two angry head gigs yes exactly well that's i find uh I find time and time again, if I if there's someone out there in this world that does something culturally interesting, chances are at some point in their life they were into punk and hardcore or hip hop. Because, you know, if you were into mainstream stuff, you were content enough to just consume the culture that was given to you. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the people that I I work with, they're all like, um, so many of them have have roots in like having seen the same shows on the or the same tours as the same bands and the same tours that I saw. And like, we have that in common and talk about like, Oh yeah, I saw the bad brains when they got back together in 1987, like, or, or whatever, whatever the case may be. Or like, I, you know, I was at that first like Metallica show at the rat when it was just like all like punk kids and like a few, like really freaky, like black metal type guys, like, and black metal, I mean the venom album, not like the Swedish or Norwegian <laughs> or whatever stuff. Original black metal yeah yeah um yeah that's definitely true i mean uh one of my one of my best friends in in the business is uh is a guy named john silva who you may have heard of he manages he's the only manager dave Grohl's ever had he managed nirvana he manages the food fighters he also met we have more clients in common with our two companies than i have with anybody else because he manages beck queens of the stone age saint vincent uh, Jenny Lewis, we have a, a bunch of things in common. And, you know, it came out early on when when we first, the first mutual client we had was Beastie Boys in the early 90s. And started talking about like, he made, he made some reference or something to Maximum Rock and Roll and like Risty Tit or something. And I was like, how the fuck do you know what that is? And he was like, Cello Biafra was my, was my roommate when I was in college. So how did I not know this? Joe's been on the show like three times and I didn't know this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, is that so, in Colorado or is that in SF? SF. He was a, wow. uh, Silva was a, was a contributor to maximum rock and roll. And like, the, like the second from the second issue on, I think. You're blowing my mind. I had no idea about that. Like I assume because like, you know, every artist you mentioned there, I can from back on, I can kind of trace back to punk in some way, but well, I had no idea that he wrote for MRR. I find MRR is weirdly like, once again, talking to my friend in Indonesia, like that thing was such an important cultural lifeline for for people. Like you book your own fucking life later on, that thing they put about how to tour. Oh, yeah. Those are book, so important. Book your own fucking life was a, was a huge, was a godsend for me when I was starting my company because I, I started my company in 1992 and no one was on the internet then and like we would just go through like uh you know call promoters in like des moines and say like you know well who should we call to like let people know about the show and they'd be like well there's like two publications here or whatever it just took everything took so fucking long because yeah. everything was done over the phone too and like you'd be leaving a voicemail for the pop music editor and hoping that they would call you back and like it but but when that that book your own fucking life series started coming out like that was great like that that really helped a lot i mean because when when i was touring for a living uh everything was about like 
people who would share like who was the cool promoter by word of mouth and like you get a list of phone numbers and like you get a list of uh phone phone card numbers that had been bootlegged that you could use to like make long distance calls from the road and you know everything was so was so reliant on like this network of of people who would share information that you know yeah. it's not it's not it's not that different from people who like post it now but they had to actually physically give it to you like mail it to you or fax it to you like a few years later like there was it wasn't as easy as just you know logging on and googling like you know cool punk venues uh st louis you know, <laughs> you know it wasn't that easy. <laughs> yeah like it really does feel like the entire way people tour like it's there's an interesting dividing line talking to people that were involved in punk pre doa uh, and giving black flag and then black flag ultimately popularizing the way that you're describing about touring and then the bands that came before it where you just like drive to some random part of the country play a show drive to some random other place hope you get a show there you're relying on bars you're doing residencies you know you're not playing to an audience it's really that network that's established by by these bands that's just kind of passed on and then it evolves where like book your own fucking life is the next generation but then post nirvana and, and post like green day and that sort of like alternative mainstreaming that happens that's the route that we still all tour by like that's the thing we still all kind of follow is that sort of like evolution of this thing but now on a more structured you know not corporate still independent but still like the same sort of network of promoters that goes back to punk like it really is an outgrowth yeah. of hardcore yeah there's this there's an established circuit now yeah and yeah it does go back to to punk rock and hardcore i mean look who you know look at golden voice yeah first yeah. time i remember seeing golden voice logo was on like uh dead kennedys and minor threat or whatever that mega show was at the olympic theater that turned into a riot at la like that was a legendary show like it was a, I, I remember that i remember hearing about it because that was the show that ssd like drove straight across the country to play <laughs> yes i'll talk about that when he was on the show just the kind of way of the different approach to touring that ssd would i guess pick up with but uh yeah nowadays you can you know route a tour so that you like play you know drive to like somewhere in western philadelphia uh, western western philadelphia western pennsylvania first and then make your way to like cleveland and yes. then make your way to yeah. chicago and minneapolis and you know break that that trip up a little rather than just like driving three days straight <laughs> to get there and play and then turn around and drive back but yeah i think they didn't they play one other show they did i forget what he says on the show he does to say they played one other show but like it's really that show obviously that's the main reason they're going out there but you could still you know as you're saying route that tour now much more efficiently and wind up playing a golden voice show in the form of coachella in california so it still all works out you're still doing something with golden voice at the end yeah yeah though i don't think they had radius clauses back then no no i think it was a very <laughs> uh, you know a very different golden voice i just learned the other day that golden voice is actually a strain of cannabis that apparently made you sing better and that's where they got the name for the company oh really yeah yeah it was wow. uh very once again post watching american hardcore and being reminded about the golden voice connection that i dug into golden voice and saw there's a, a twin love of mine going on there with cannabis and with uh, punk rock in the, the early rock. formation of Golden Voice. But look at uh, 
Gus from uh, Florida, who now manages Blink-182 and was like the main promoter yeah. for Florida shows for years, right? Like, yeah. there, there's so many people that are this music industry now or have come from this thing into this music industry. And once again, like, musically, you were given permission to do things. You were a kid and you wanted to see a band come to your town. You booked them. Yeah, you wrote, you sent a letter to their P.O. box and said, like, uh, you know, I can get 150 kids to this VFW hall and that was the way it went. And I, I definitely played a lot of shows like that. Um, but it was weird because with AF, it was kind of a mishmash of, of that. And uh, like those kinds of shows, like, you know, the, the, the cool kid who could put on a show in, or, in, in like a basement club in Orlando or like a, a Knights of Columbus Hall in, in uh, some smaller town or you played some weird venues, but then we'd also be playing like the stone in San Francisco, which is like yeah. 1500 capacity, like metal club or, you know, uh, the Metro in Chicago and like legit places. So it was always a, a kind of patchwork of these different kinds of shows. Like it wasn't like, like it is now where there's just a, a, a kind of circuit, like a club circuit that you play. It seems like you join AF at a really kind of fraught period for the band too. post cause for alarm there's like a backlash, right? Like MRR, going back to MRR, there's definitely hatred on that from MRR at that point, right? Yeah. And then, and, uh, you know, like I love, obviously, that live record is one of the most classic live records ever to come out of hardcore and Liberty oh, and Justice is, is now like, you know, a beloved record. Yeah, I got, I, I definitely got that vibe at the time. And I remember thinking consciously when I was writing uh, this, I was like, I, I wrote a decent chunk of Liberty and Justice and uh, when I was writing, I was just trying to, like, keep all of their previous stuff, like, out of my head and just tr try to write s stuff that that was kind of where where the music, where, where that type of music might be going rather than where it had been. Because I wasn't really into, like, the, the kind of pure hardcore revivalists. Like I, I wasn't feeling like the youth of today and bold and, and stuff like that. Like I wasn't really, I mean, sick of it all were, were great, but they, they were a little more progressive than those bands were in their songwriting. And, and uh, they, they were a little more ambitious, I think. But uh, yeah, I was just trying to write something that didn't sound like anything else. And uh, it was frustrating at the time, but, it does seem like you said it does seem like people have come around to it over the years and people have come around to to cause for alarm oh which, definitely yeah you know that that record was was pretty groundbreaking at the time even though it was made by a band that was like a, a hair's breadth away from splitting up and had like other people coming in to to write and write songs and write lyrics and play drums from uh, on the record from other bands like you know, that that was the band that was on the record was not the band that played that tour. You know, I, I remember seeing them on that tour with, when they were playing with GBH. And uh, yeah, it was a totally, totally different uh, lead guitar player and drummer, I think. Yeah, because Alex Kynan and, uh, and Louis Beato played on the record. They didn't play on the tour. It's there. Yeah. It does feel like that band, like you watch live videos from that period. Like even that I think it's like the wetlands live riot video. Is it wetlands where there's a huge riot where the crowd 
is riding and then the security guards are riding and then like af's on stage roger's got the sickest long braided like uh long hair and he's doing this wild dance that i don't think i've ever seen him do again like this kind of step arm dance have you seen this video i don't think you're in the band at this point oh my gosh it's so sick it must be just before i don't know actually when it kind of falls in the chronological period of the band but it's like it feels like they are a band that really got redeemed by coming back together in the 90s and kind of the legacy was kind of cleaned up in a way and people were like looked at them and differently now and kind of give them their like i mean they were always given this sort of like their their flowers in new york and, and in certain circles but i mean like i think they're now accepted as the legends worldwide yeah i i i, I think that is too and i i also think it has to do with like just there's there's just such a better vibe around them than there is around like some other bands from that period or some other bands that have gotten back together from like later and earlier stages of hardcore they like you said there's that familial vibe and i think that extends to the fans as well that they just they always seem like they're having fun which is not how it was necessarily was when i was in the band and we were touring to like pay bills and stuff yeah but uh but yeah, they they just seem to to do it now for fun more than anything else, and and that that comes through. They're not they're not bitter about anything either. Too like there's there's so many so many people from from the, those scenes that uh, those days that feel like they didn't get their due or whatever. Like they, that they didn't get what was what what should have been coming to them or whatever. Like you know they just they just resent the fact that they only sold like thirty thousand records or something. Whereas mm-hmm. like to me, I was like I can't believe like that I ever wrote a song that some that you know a couple hundred people would sing along at once and and I got that out of my system when I was young, which is which is good because like when it became apparent that I wasn't going to be playing music for the rest of my life and I wasn't going to be doing it for a living and that I was uh, uh, much better at doing the business thing than I was at, at playing but uh I I never when people ask me if I if I miss it I can honestly say like no I don't like I I always enjoy the the feeling of getting on stage and playing with with old friends and like doing that but like the idea of like going to like regular rehearsals and you know, having downtime in a in a city where there's nothing to do, like uh, overnight drives in a van, like that. I don't miss any of that stuff. It was, it was always about like getting to that like forty five to sixty minutes that you would actually have fun, and the other the other uh, twenty three hours of the day were like the hard work, the slogging it out. Which well, I don't have to tell you. I mean, you've toured. You know, you no, know what it's, it's like it's maddening you know and that's why i think there's so many of these bands that are like obviously people are drawn to this lifestyle that have certain mental issues i'm sure but i think the, the, the band thing really does feed it you know like you're living for one hour a day and the whole day is either nerves and, and excitement building up to it or trying to come down from it so you can go to sleep so you can do it all again the next day and like you're saying <laughs> you're in a van you know like it's gonna make you crazy i got a lot of empathy for my crazy hardcore brethren yeah yeah it's it's a it's a hard life and there's definitely a a ceiling on on uh i would say like a glass ceiling but it's more of like a like a lead ceiling like there's a hard ceiling on like on how how far you can make it and playing like traditional old hardcore but 
but what, what do I know? Like these, like Turnstile is playing like, you know, just before Metallica on some of these festivals, like they're, they're, but they're really like an exception to the rule. Like they're, 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 uh, they're, they're definitely an outlier. They are, but you almost need the outliers to keep the scene going. Like uh, Blink-182 and the, the Offspring being on Nemesis Records and, and Green Day, of yeah. course, being on, on Lookout. Prior to that, you know, you have the um, Nirvana blowing up and, and carrying Sub Pop along with it. And you need these sort of flourishes, these bands to get popular, sort of populate the next scene and to have a bunch of kids. Like not everyone's going to stay and get involved in DIY stuff, but there'll be enough new kids that kind of find out about it and like you don't want to sneak out of the house and take the train to the city and see what's going on at these clubs. Yeah. yeah or even like suicidal tendencies when they, all of a sudden they had a, a video on MTV in like 1983 or 84 or whenever Absolutely. that was. Yeah. It, that definitely like, like ratcheted up the, the profile of the entire genre of music. Or Saturday Night Live. Like, Sorry. I mean, okay, yeah, go on. yeah. Fear on SNL or, or, uh, the Minutemen getting the This Ain't No Picnic video on like MTV late night rotation or uh, Husker Du Don't Want to Know If You're a Lonely video. No, I find there's a like, actual like slam dancing in it. Like Yeah, well, that's sick of it all videos with, uh, what is it, Step Down? Uh, yeah. With the, with the moshing, you know, seeing that on MTV or like or much music in Canada, obviously. And, you know, how many kids got into it from seeing Rancid play that SNL slot or Rancid on South Park or, yeah. you know, these sorts of... Uh, like the one I find always amazing is Julian Casablanca wearing that yeah yeah yeah's pin on SNL, and then everyone becoming obsessed with who the yeah yeah's were the next day in the music press at that time. And it just felt like these sort of like large cultural beacon points that we used to have, where everyone kind of would gather around and look to when something would break through and get on there from the underground. It would have incredible ripple effects that are still felt like I'm, I'm do a whole podcast about people that feel these ripples. Yeah, I mean the the Devo on SNL was, was that was a dividing line culturally. Like you, the next the next Monday in in high school, after that after that episode aired, it was like either you were like I just saw the greatest band ever, or, or it was or it was like it had become an insult for the people who didn't think they were the greatest band ever. <laughs> honestly, that was like where like Hey Devo, that was where where that all started. I, I got to feel like obviously not quite as cool, but ultimately maybe arguably as cool a band. But for me, that was the cramps on 90210. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the <laughs> cramps were, they were just, they were so great. Fortunate that I saw them a bunch in the eighties that, that, uh, that I, I, you know, it, even, even when I saw them in the nineties, like later on when they were playing like, uh, Nanny in Orange County. I was at that show for some reason. It was like the Cramps and Social Distortion and X all playing back to back, and they were always great. It was so, like any anything that the that Lux and Ivy did was just so great. Absolutely, like a, a like a, a a true career, like an auteur career. The two of them, because yeah, like Flame Job, like those later records are still great. Like they may not be goo goo muck, but they're still awesome records. They never let you down. Yeah. And then Goo Goo Muck is in Wednesday show on Netflix that uh, <laughs> yeah. gets a whole new lease on life and people are discovering the, the rest of the, the Cramps discography, hopefully. Yeah, we're going to have a, like a generation of bands that are informed by the Cramps just because of this Wednesday show popping up and then all these kids uh, like yeah. to it. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. It's amazing how that works. But anyway, I've kept you 
forever. And I know you've got a lot to do today. And I would love you to come back on at some point in the future if you're All ever right. free to talk about any of this stuff. But before I let you go, did, did Straw Dogs and AF overlap? Because you do that, there's a, like a Straw Dogs record that comes out in 91. Or is that there a compilation? Was, I was not on the record that was in 91. I was, I, I recorded We Are Not Amused, which came out after I had left the band. But I, I played on it, recorded in 86. And I joined AF in late 86. The first shows I played with AF were like December of 86. And uh, I, I played like the last few dates on the Cause for Alarm tour before we started writing Liberty and Justice. So it did kind of overlap a little in that the We Are Not Amused by the Straw Dogs came out like around the time that I was first playing shows in AF. I think that I think We Are Not Amused came out in November of 86 and it was recorded that summer. If I if I recall correctly, okay, that makes sense. Steve, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, no problem. Thank you, Steve, for coming on the show, and hopefully, Steve will be back at some point in the near future uh, because we got a lot more to talk about. That was a lot of fun. Check out uh, Agnostic Front. Liberty and Justice and the, the Live and CBGB's record and check out Straw Dog stuff. I think Straw Dogs are, I think those Straw Dog records are super underrated. I love those records and I'll, I'm definitely a massive FU's fan too. So check out all the stuff Steve does and look out for that name. You'll see it everywhere. All right. Uh, what'd you think, Cam? Did you like that episode? Thumbs up. I got a thumbs up right there. Uh, and you're thinking turned out of punk. Um. Um, okay, turn coming up on the next episode of Turned Out of Punk, like that. Yeah. yeah okay. Good. Uh, we got a we got a great one coming up for the next episode. My new buddy Nick Harmer from Death Cab for Cutie. This is a great episode. We talk about punk, hardcore, rebelling against your folks, then raising kids, and and all sorts of stuff. This is a fun one. I'm excited for you to hear it. And that is coming up on the next one of Turned Out of Punk. All right, everyone. Thank you very much. For... Punk. I said Turned Out of Punk. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of Indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. And stop hate and violence towards people of different races and different faiths and different ethnicities uh, because identities and different identities too absolutely because this isn't politics we're talking about this is just basic human rights stuff people deserve to live free from hate violence and discrimination so if there's organizations in your community that are affecting positive change get involved donate your time donate your your money or if you have it um and be be uh, uh you know the the change you want to see speaking about being the thing you want to see Get involved with punk. Anyone can do this stuff. Start a band. Start a fanzine. Start uh, podcast. Uh, podcasts. There's too many of these podcasts out there. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, start a podcast. Uh, start a start whatever. Just just get contribute to it because it gets better when you get involved. Speaking about things getting better, sign your organ donor cards because we've got family, right, Cam? Yeah. That that had a transplant, an organ transplant, and it changed their life, saved their life. Uncle Bill. He did? Yeah, he had the heart transplant. Don't you remember how sick he was before? No. 
you don't remember the way you were very young when he was very sick, but he's he's now doing great because he had this heart transplant. So sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. They're just dead weight. They're just getting rid of the organs that have to get rid out of the body anyway. It's a little morbid. I'm sorry. I don't mean to, to bring down our conversation, buddy. Uh, and, and try meditating because it, it does help. It help, can help calm you down. Do you, do you meditate? You meditate at school sometimes, right? Why did you mention meditating? I always mention it on the podcast. Oh. It doesn't, don't, it's not just because we saw a Bob's Burgers episode. Oh, someone sent me an email. It's not just because we saw a Bob's Burgers episode about it the other day. Or today. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, do you have anything to say? Do you want to say anything to people? No. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Stay safe, and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.